You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a retired Green Beret who had an alive day in Iraq where he survived. That's going to get the tonnage here, right? Uh, 500, 500 gallons of diesel fuel, 2,155 millimeter rounds, and a quarter of metric tons of TNT survived that blast to live and tell his story. We'll get to that coming up here in just a few moments. First on normal announcements. Again, as always, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, smash that like button, give a thumbs up to all the content there. Love to read your guys' comments. Please leave them there as you watch the show on YouTube. Appreciate you guys taking part in that. Leave Apple reviews, leave all your reviews everywhere. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. And continue to uh, support our Amazon promotion on our website. Go to hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab, and you can uh, be directed right to Amazon. You do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and I'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So if you'd like to donate to veterans somehow, you can do it by just doing normal Amazon shopping, but you've got to go to hazardground.com first and click on that Amazon button so we get the referral. Appreciate you guys doing that as always. And if you need to contact us, go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Contact Us button. Uh, love to hear from you guys. If you have any guest suggestions, please send them our way. We always love hearing them. And if you have a guest suggestion, if you have contact information, that also helps too. Um, makes our job a little bit easier as far as getting them on. But again, hazardground.com, the place to go. All right, this week's guest is a retired Army CW3, spent almost 25 years in uniform, 17 of that with the Green Berets. Eight total deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, plus multiple other deployments around the world. Uh, had his alive day back in 2005, actually when I was in Iraq at the same time, uh, although not in the same location. Told you about the size of what uh, he survived and lived to tell about it. Uh, he's also a uh, teammate and a member of Daryl Utt, former Hazard Ground guest, who told his story uh, a couple of months ago. He is Ryan Neal joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Ryan, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Oh, appreciate you for having me on, Mark. That's a badass background, man. For those watching on YouTube, that's legit. So uh, we appreciate you coming, going big or, or going home, so to speak. I try. Yeah, I actually, um, I, I made that in uh, Afghanistan on my last deployment uh, in some of my spare time. So something I hold near and dear to my heart. Well, uh, it looks great. I'll say that much. Um, all right. We got a, a lot to get to here. Um, in April 2005, but let's start back at the beginning and how and why you got in the Army. Well, uh, it's an interesting story. I uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in uh, college. Um, you know, both my, my parents were, uh, you know, educators, uh, you know, prior to my mother uh, passing away. Uh, so, you know, I had strong support for education, but, you know, I, I didn't really feel it was for me, you know, so I started looking around, uh, what my options were and, um, funny, I, I called the, uh, the, the Marine recruiter asking, or the army recruiter asking for the Marine recruiter's number. Uh, cause you know, I wanted to be forced recon. I wanted to, do, you know, do something that was really high speed. Cool. Of course I had no idea what I was talking about at the time, but, uh, you know, called the army guy and, uh, the rest is history. He, uh, he ended up snagging me for the army. So, that's pretty much how I, I got into the army. And then, um, you know, I was just interested in, in pushing myself and seeing what I could do, how far I could go. And, 
Um, you know, before I knew it, uh, graduated Ranger School within two years of joining the Army, uh, became a squad leader uh, in the scout platoon, uh, and then eventually, you know, went uh, went SF and found myself in 10th Special Forces Group. Well, okay, so you, you end up um, going infantry, is that right? Yeah, I was uh, an 11 Bravo Light Infantry right out of the gate, and uh, you know I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Uh, I loved the the physical challenges. I loved the um, you know just the everything about it. You know, going to the field, uh, embracing the suck, you know, so to speak, and the the crappy weather, the the bugs, everything. Uh, I thought it was it was fun. That's one word to describe it. I guess we might, have, we might have different definitions of fun, but yeah, I mean, you know, everybody's got a different mindset. Um, you end up at Fort Campbell uh, for your first duty station where, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to uh, skip too far ahead, but coincidentally you end up in Afghanistan before you ever become uh, a green beret, but you also went to Saudi Arabia and Kosovo. Like, I mean, when you signed up, did you think like, Hey, I'm going to go travel and see the world. I mean, it's got that kind of what was in your mind at the same time. Well, kind of, I mean, when, uh, when I was growing up, uh, my, my dad was a college professor. And uh, for my seventh grade year, uh, I lived in Africa. My dad took a sabbatical leave and uh, he taught at the university there, uh, just outside of uh, uh, the, the capital of Nairobi in a small town called Njoro. And uh, I went to a British boarding school for a year. And so, you know, I, I, I guess I was, I was predisposed to, you know, uh, experiencing a lot of cultures, uh, different languages, and, uh, you know, just I, I, I grew to really appreciate that. And, um, you know, so when I when I joined the Army, you know, at the time, I mean, it was, you know, mid 90s, uh, you know, we there wasn't really any conflicts going on, uh, so to speak. And, you know, I, I, I guess in some way, shape or form, I envisioned that, you know, I'd, I'd probably find myself, you know, overseas somewhere uh, doing something. But no, in no way did I envision what the, uh, the future held for me. When uh when when you end up in Kosovo and places like that, I mean, at that point in time, did you think that was as close to combat that as you you would ever see? Yeah, I think so. Probably. I mean, it was it was an interesting time. Uh, you know, the the air campaign had just ended uh, shortly after we got there, and then it, it turned into the ground campaign. And so, you know, it was it was pretty interesting to see the evolution. The uh, military tactical agreement expired. Uh, while we were there on that rotation. And so there was a lot of uncertainty. People didn't know what was going to happen, uh, you know, uh, with the border situations and whatnot. And, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting because I was a scout squad leader and I, I was able to operate in small teams uh, along the border, doing uh, reconnaissance patrols, gathering intel, seeing what was going on to uh, inform the bigger picture. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of helicopter infills late at night, uh, X fills late at night. So it was, it was really unique. It was really interesting. Uh, I don't, you know, know how many, you know, people were, were having experiences like that, uh, in situations as, as real as, as Kosovo was, but you know, it was, it was fairly unique from what I understand. All right. So where are you on nine 11? Uh, so nine 11, uh, I, uh, I was a scout squad leader still in uh, headquarters company, uh, 2nd Battalion, 187, Rock Sons. And uh, my uh, my company commander basically put me in charge of PT that morning. And he gave me a challenge. He said, hey, you know, I, I bet you can't smoke smoke me. 
smoke everybody here. And I was like, okay, I got you guys' number. Oh, he was one of those guys, yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I took it as a challenge. And uh, so I I took him out on a long run, uh, you know, really fast. Wore everybody out, and uh, you know, afterwards we we broke and uh, went to shower up, eat breakfast, and get ready for the day. And um, you know, true to form, I I got ready early, and I was I was in the uh, the the uh, platoon area, and all of a sudden somebody came down, and they were like, "Hey, you know, you gotta you gotta check out what's going on 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 TV." And uh, so I went upstairs to the the company ops uh, area, and. Uh, I, I saw, you know, what was going on and, uh, I, I'm, I believe, you know, after the second, uh, aircraft hit the tower, that was about the time when, you know, everybody started getting spun up, uh, you know, platoon sergeant came in, uh, first sergeant company commander, uh, the other companies really started, you know, bustling with activity and, uh, you know, immediately, you know, we, we knew the gravity of what was going on. Uh, so, you know, it was a matter of getting everybody, uh, contacted, uh, some people had gone off post, you know, to their houses to shower up, eat breakfast, whatever. And, um, you know, the, the way that they, they ended up locking down all the bases, some of those individuals, they weren't even get able to get back on base until, you know, late that night or even the, the next morning, sometime that day, next day. Uh, so it was really interesting. And, you know, and then it just went into a, um, you know, a rapid process of, uh, you know, packing list inventories, layouts, you know, prepping everything for deployment. Um, coincidentally, uh, my unit had just assumed the deployment readiness uh, for status one, DRF one for uh, the 101st. So, you know, we were, we were essentially, you know, the, the first in the shoot from the 101st getting ready. Yeah. I, you know, I can remember, um, being on ground in Afghanistan and one seeing that big Rakasan's uh, statue right there. Was it Bagram or Canada? I think it was Bagram. Yeah, it was Bagram. Yeah. Um, so that's where you end up. Now, the war kicks off in October, obviously. Um, interestingly enough, with a lot of Green Berets on the ground there. Um, yeah. if, you, if you know how the beginning of that war went um, as we were, you know, started the bombing campaign, which is crazy to think. For those who don't, I'll just give you the – I mean, you basically had two man special forces teams sitting on the top of a mountaintop by themselves for 12 to 16 hours at a time, just calling in strikes all day long, making sure they're covered and concealed, not being found, calling in strikes. And then two more guys would walk up the mountain and relieve them. Those two guys would walk down. And that went on for a couple of weeks at the very outset of the campaign. So um, to give you a level of idea of what Green Berets are capable of, it's it's, it's that kind of, uh, you know, uh, level of, of infiltration, but, you know, also efficiency and, and ability to call an airstrikes from where they are. Uh, that said, when do you guys actually get on ground for your first deployment? Well, so we, uh, my unit uh, actually got on ground uh, December 18th. Okay. Uh, we, we originally went to uh, Jacobabad, Pakistan and uh, staged from there. And actually as, as everything was going on, as uh, you know, Anaconda was kicking off and everything, I had actually done a, a handover with my assistant squad leader, and I was in the process of going back uh, to the States to attend selection, um, it, special forces selection. Oh, so when you, the, you were going to selection before 9-11 happened? No, actually, I didn't. Okay. Uh, so, you know, we, we loaded out. Um, backing up a little bit, I had, I had gone to uh, CAG selection in, in the spring of 01. 
All right. So what made you do that, though? I see. I, I'm sorry for skipping around, but I thought chronologically you had done this after your first deployment. So I, I just want to catch everybody up. Yeah. So I, I went to uh, to CAG selection, uh, Delta Force selection in the spring of 01. Um, you know, I, I, I made it through, um, but I was a, a non-select at the very end. Why did uh, you want to do Delta so badly? Well, because, you know, I, I just, I, I really wanted to push myself as hard as I could. Um, and, you know, I, it, it was, it was to me what the, the pinnacle was, um, you know, I, I really had no idea what I was, I was thinking or talking about. Um, you know, I, I'd learned later on, but, uh, you know, I, um, I, uh, I had already had, uh, I think three, uh, special forces, green beret selection packets submitted. Uh, I, I did my first packet submission, uh, the Monday after I graduated ranger school in 1998. And they told me, Hey, Hey bud, you know, cool your jets. Uh, the, the 101st has you for a, a year for, you know, use after sending you to the school. Um, so, you know, I, I had submitted another packet. Uh, my unit told me, hey, you know, we, we need you. You're a squad leader, um, you know, best interest of the unit type stuff. So I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll stay here. Um, did whatever training, submitted another packet. And, uh, you know, then we were getting ready to go to, uh, you know, Kosovo and then, you know, Afghanistan eventually. But it was in Afghanistan that that selection packet, most recent one, actually went through. And so, you know, my my um, battalion sergeant major, my company sergeant major, my platoon sergeant, uh, they all came to me uh, when we were in Jacobabad getting ready to um, launch. And they basically said, hey, you know, you need to decide what you're going to do. Because if you don't decide, the Army is going to decide for you. And, you know, it was at that moment, you know, that, you know, I had a little bit of clarity. I'd already been in the same unit for, um, you know, about uh, about five years. Uh, I was already uh, an E6 uh, in the same battalion, you know, E1 to E6. And, you know, basically they were telling me, you need to, you need to do something. And so I, I said, all right. And I, um, I accepted the selection packet and I, I deployed back to the States to uh, attend selection. Uh, that was, you know, surreal. It was uh, a little bit uncomfortable, you know, knowing what, what was going on. And, uh, you know, I had just left. And, and that was the, you know, the, the guys that I had been with for, you know, a number of years. We'd gone through a number of, uh, you know, training iterations, uh, maybe previous deployments to that. And uh, so, you know, I felt a little uh, guilty at the time of leaving, but I knew in the back of my mind that what I was, you know, starting was going to throw me back at the tip of the spear, uh, you know, again and again and again. So right. I I took some comfort in that. So initially, when you get to Afghanistan, you, you you never, so technically you never actually got to Afghanistan or you did end up going on the first? I, I did not actually yeah. go uh, to Afghanistan. Right. Um, I, I had to pull out uh, just because of the way the, the flights and everything were stacking up. Right, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Interesting. The timing of the whole thing, uh, very, 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 you know, I guess, you know, just curious, you know, it's just, I, I, when I, when I was going down the bio and looking at him, I'm like, okay, he was on the, I know, I remember the Rakasans being in Afghanistan right after Operation Anaconda in, in late 01, uh, in, into early 02. So it made, it made sense. Um, you end up going to assessment selection. Um, 
way back in the day, back when it was, I guess, is it was, was it more difficult back then, do you think? Uh, you know, I mean, everybody says they were in the last hard class. Um, <laughs> you know, whether it's ranger school, you know, selection, whatever. I mean, you know, it's it, it's challenging regardless. You know, yes. we we didn't have a lot of team events uh, when when I was when it went through. Uh, it was mainly you know individual assessment. You know, the the long range movement, uh, individual movement, LRIM uh, was still a thing. That was like the culmination. And you know, I can't remember how many miles it was, but you know, I think it was maybe over thirty miles with a, a heavy pack you know, navigating, uh, in the day, night from point to point. And, um, I, I, I remember going through that and, you know, thinking to myself that, you know, this is, you know, it's, it's not very hard because, you know, I was comparing everything to, uh, that, that previous CAG selection that I went to in, in uh, early one. So, you know, whether, whether it's harder now or, you know, it was harder before, I can't really say, I mean, I, I think it's, it's as hard as you make it. You know, if, if you're willing to push yourself, you know, to the limits, uh, anything can stress you out. Did the, did, the, did the instructors at assessment selection, the evaluators, did they know that you had already went to Delta? Um, I, I have no idea. I mean, oh, okay. uh, still to this Typically, day. Typically, they probably try to ride you a little bit harder then, right? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, still to this day, I don't even know what's in, uh, you know, those, those uh, – uh, selection profiles. Uh, right. It'd be interesting to see what uh, what they were saying about me, you know, all the way back then. But um, did you know what you wanted to do within the Green Berets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I always had an interest in medicine. Um, you know, when I was in Kosovo, uh, our battalion surgeon, because I was in the scalp platoon, we were co-located with the orders element, and so it was a unique opportunity. Our um, battalion surgeon put on a uh, EMT course while we were there. And uh, that that really spurred my my interest, reinforced my interest. Got to do some things at uh, one of the hospitals on Camp Bonsteel, uh, and um, you know, so when when I went to selection, you know, they they give you a list. You know, you can write out your your uh, your top picks. You're not guaranteed any of them, but uh, you know, given the fact that 18 deltas uh, were you know pretty pretty much critically low uh, for their fill. Uh, anybody that that selected or chose 18 Delta was getting it. And, uh, you know, if if you showed aptitude and you picked another MOS, more than likely you were getting stuck with 18 Delta as well. But, um, yeah, I, I, I really liked it. And when I came back from selection, um, fifth group was actually coming back uh, from Afghanistan, the initial push that they had done. And, and uh, so I met I, I was able to meet, you know, some of the giants in fifth group. Uh, you know, Tony Pryor was one of them, bucket ahead, uh, pretty good story about him. And, um, I, uh, my, my previous battalion surgeon, when I was in the infantry, not the one that put on that, uh, EMT course in Kosovo, but the, the one following, he was a prior 18 Delta who went to PA school and he, he was the battalion PA, uh, for the Rakasans when I was there. And so he had gone back to fifth group because he had gotten promoted and he was able to get back. And I just reached out to him and I was like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm selected to be an 18 Delta and I'd really like to, you know, do some on the job training. My unit is still deployed uh, in Afghanistan. So, you know, I don't want to be on rear D just, you know, doing paperwork, doing admin stuff. So I was able to do, um, uh, about, uh, eight months at, of OJT at first of the fifth. 
And I was rated as an 18 Delta, even though my, my MOS was 11 Bravo still at that point. So, yeah. you know, I got a lot of experience uh, on, you know, what the, the general rule roles and responsibilities were for an 18 Delta. Uh, I got to do a lot of uh, immunizations across the board, getting them up to speed because uh, they were, they were actually getting prepped uh, for, uh, for Iraq. The, uh, the indicators were already out and uh, they were starting to prep. So it was a unique experience. And then from there, I, um, I, I went to the Q course. So it's interesting, you know, um, you have yet to actually go to combat. Um, and again, we talked about Kosovo. I'm not going to downplay the level of what was going on there, but this is obviously different. But as you're in the special ops world, now you're starting to, you know, touch people who have been to combat. What are they telling you? What are they talking about their experience? And, and what are your, what's sort of like your emotional response to what you're hearing? Um, I guess naively, my, my emotional response was, uh, man, you know, I, I, I want some of that, you know, I want to get there. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think, I, I think that, you know, was, was a fairly common response, uh, because, you know, when it's just like in sports, you know, nobody, nobody wants to ride the pine. Nobody wants to, you know, sit, sit on the outskirts and, and watch things happen. Uh, everybody wants to get in there and, uh, and, and, you know, make, make an impact. And so, you know, that was my, my general, uh, perspective on things. The, the other side of it was, you know, kind of assessing what I was getting into. And, you know, I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. You know, I, I was in awe of, of the stories I was hearing and, and, and then just, you know, thinking about what, what my future can be, what, what I can do to contribute in, in the same fashion. So we roll around to, uh, 2004, uh, you finished the Q course, um, you go and end up going to 10th group. Uh, I don't know if you had any selection or any, any desire to go there or you went wherever they sent you. Is that how it unfolded? Not really. Uh, I mean, it, it folded, it, it unfolded well. I mean, I, I, I can't complain at all. Um, but you know, having been at, at Fort Campbell, where you know Fifth Group was, knowing a, a lot of people that that had you know gone to Fifth Group from from my unit, uh, and having met some other in, other SF guys from Fifth Group just from you know different things around post training and, and whatnot, I, I I I put Fifth Group as my first choice. I wanted to go back there and. You know, I think it was also because I had been in the the, the Rock Suns. You know, I was comfortable there. You know, I knew the area, um, and I I wanted to be comfortable, even though I was doing something uh, that was going to force me to be uncomfortable. Uh, so I picked Fifth Group. Uh, I met my wife in Nashville, and um, so you know, it, it kind of made sense. But I put Tenth Group as my second choice because my wife uh, really wanted to get out of uh, Tennessee. So <laughs> uh, luckily uh, we got 10th group. I was assigned 10th group and uh, she was happy with that. And that, that took us here. Good old Fort Carson, Colorado. Uh, how quickly after you get to 10th group, do you end up back in Iraq? Uh, so I, it was, it was really quick. Um, I, I think that um from the, the time I actually signed into my unit, uh, 2nd Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group, to when we deployed, 
was less than 30 days. Uh, <laughs> I remember walking into my team room, uh, meeting my team sergeant. He basically said, you know, you know, who are you? Where are you coming from? What'd you do? And, uh, you know, just a little butt sniffing kind of thing. And uh, then I remember being pointed towards a, a garbage bag, just a, you know, miscellaneous medical supplies. And uh, he, he basically pointed at that and said, hey, you know, Battalion Med just dropped that off. Uh, you need to, you know, take care of it, divvy it out, make the, uh, the, the first aid pouches for everybody. And uh, if, if you need anything, I'll, I'll give you a call. <laughs> yeah, uh, interesting times. By the yeah. way, um, Lieutenant Colonel Swindell, that name ring a bell? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Colonel Swindell, uh, he, was, he was my battalion commander uh, for, I believe, uh, three he was He was my battalion commander in Iraq the second time you guys went back there in early 06. Yep. And, and then later he uh he went up to group and uh and beyond. Yeah. Um I I distinctly remember a conversation I had with him. I'm I'm fast forwarding here because I want to get to your day, but you know, just for the synergy and connectivity here. Yeah. When I left that deployment at the end of it, he offered me a, a spot to assessment and selection when I when I at the end of that deployment. Um really nice guy, very good leader. Um yeah. pleasure to work with. Him, uh, I think his XO was Major Bellanoit, uh, if I remember that name correctly. I uh, believe so, yeah, at that time. Yeah, um, and I forget who the company commander was that I was under. But 2nd Battalion, 10th Group came in. I was with 3rd Battalion, 10th Group for the first half or the first third of my rotation. Then 2nd Bat, 5th Group came in. Then 2nd Bat, 10th Group came in. Uh, and I spent the last three or four months with those guys from from down at RPC, uh, right there in Baghdad at the Palace on the Hill uh, with those guys. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> uh, it's just it was interesting times, a big army, small, it's a lot, a lot of small connections. All right. Anyway. So, uh, when do you get back to Iraq officially? Uh, so I got back to I say for the first time. When do you get to Iraq? The, the, the first time I deployed to Iraq was, uh, I believe it was, uh, mid November of 2004. Okay. Um, what's your, you guys at that point in time are doing what? So at, at that point in time, uh, we were we were at a Intecrit. Um, we were at a, a team house just just outside of uh, in the city, outside of uh, FOB Danger. FOB Danger was the the large uh, conventional um, you know base that was there in Tikrit, and um, our our AOB, our company headquarters, was located over there. Our focus was. Uh, engaging with the Iraqi military uh, that was based out of the birthday palace in Tikrit. Uh, that's Saddam Hussein's, you know, famous palace where he would always, you know, have his birthday celebrations and shoot the pistol off of the, the balcony while he was observing. Um, so our, our, our whole purpose uh, really was, you know, uh, apart from prosecuting targets, uh, was to train the Iraqi military. Uh, we we established a, a basic training uh, template for the the regular Iraqi military, and then uh, we we developed a, a more advanced uh, you know course practicum that was focused on you know CQB and and things of that nature. And they they that element was our our cadre in our teaching activities, and then they were also our, our strike force when we would go out and, and execute targets. 
throughout to crit in the, uh, the wider area. All right. So um, at this point in time, though, kinetic operations are kind of slow. I mean, after, you know, we get to the early part of, of 2004, after, quote, mission accomplished, everything sort of died down. The insurgency hadn't really started yet. Um, yeah, it was it, it, it was fairly quiet. I mean, you know, like I said, the, the large uh, focus of our, our, our efforts was was training. Um, which was the same as mine when I got there in, in 05. Um, you know, I worked at the ISOP brigade. I, I, I built and stood up the support battalion of the ISOP brigade. Um, but regardless, I only asked that to say, you know, kind of leading up to, you know, your alive day here in, in April of the following year, it's like, Hey, not much going on here at this point in time, right? You're not seeing a lot of action period. Yeah. You know, it was, you know, we were, we were executing targets, uh, but you know, there really wasn't a lot of, you know, a lot of gunfights, you know, right. um, we, we were tracking, um, you know, some Intel streams that, you know, our house was being targeted that, uh, to Weedwall Jihad, which was a, an active Al Qaeda affiliate, uh, in the, the Beijing to crit area of Saladin province. Um, they were, they were actively, you know, trying to, uh, gather Intel on us, uh in in target us uh because of our activities that we were doing with the the iraqi military um and you know they they had all these you know perceptions that we were a a a hub for intel activities and we were associated with the the israeli Mossad. i mean the stories were were pretty uh pretty grandiose uh but you know they they were targeting us and um we we did an operation uh, up in Beijing, uh, just north of, of Tikrit, uh, to essentially do a, a snatch of the the leader of Tawiwal Jihad, and uh, it was a daylight mission. Um, you know, everybody's pucker factor was pretty high because we were you know dressed up uh, to uh, reduce our signature, and uh, we were in you know unarmored, um, you know non-standard, uh, well. Uh, indigenous operating vehicles, IOVs. And uh, we left to crit. Um, we uh, coordinated with our QRF. We had a, a, a sister team that was up there in Beijing. And uh, we also had some uh, QRF assets lined up with the conventional forces that were there. And uh, we rolled into town midday. Um, you know, the market was full of hundreds and hundreds of people. And, you know, they were they were just feet away, looking inside the vehicle, everything. Uh, we made our turn to uh, the, you know, short final for the target, um, got out in front of the target, uh, went down, uh, got our got our individual that we were looking for, and uh, we were off target in probably about 45 seconds. Wow. Um, we we went back. Uh, Never goes that smooth. No, I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> it was, you know, one of those times where everything went right. Right. Um, and thankfully so, because, you know, like I said, we... We uh, the only armor we had was, was our body armor. Uh, we the vehicles we were in were you know just regular vehicles that blended into the the environment, and um, that really um, really kind of accelerated the planning and uh, the actual execution of the the attack on our our team house uh, on April fourteenth of, of two thousand five. Well, yeah, I, was, I would assume the the. Uh stinging or, or messing with the hornet's nest, so to speak, uh, was, was that snatch and grab that you did. 
All right, so April 14th, uh, 2005, you wake up, normal morning, early morning. How does it start for you? Uh, well, it, it was a normal morning. Uh, I was supposed to meet uh, a couple of teammates downstairs uh, in the kitchen of our team house, uh, you know, to eat breakfast, mix up our uh, protein shakes and head over to the gym, get a workout in. But uh, I'd been up late the previous night, so I was hitting my snooze button. And um, that's probably what saved my life because where my bed was positioned um, offered, you know, uh, enough defilade to essentially save my life. Um, it was, there was a open window and, uh, you know, out to uh, our staging area for our vehicles and everything uh, in just right out in front of the house. Um, I remember hitting my snooze button, you know, kind of being a little bit, uh, back into sleep and I heard a couple of uh, pop shots from one of our Kurdish Peshmerga guards. Um, didn't really think anything of it. Thought it was, you know, just somebody slowed down. Somebody was doing something that they shouldn't have been doing on, uh, on highway one there. And um, you know, he was just giving them a warning shot to get them on their way. Well, the next thing I heard was a, uh, a really loud crash and it was immediately followed up with a couple of full auto bursts from that same guard. Uh, immediately uh, after uh, the the two full auto bursts, uh, there was just this massive explosion. My eyes opened up, and all I all I could see was was flames. My entire room was engulfed in fire. Um, anything and everything that could be, you know, uh, be turned into a projectile was was flying through my room. Um, I was, I was lifted up and, uh, you know, kind of launched uh, a little bit to almost an upright position. Uh, I'd taken a, a piece of shrapnel, a uh, large piece of shrapnel off my head. Um, so it rang my bell pretty bad. I didn't lose consciousness, uh, thankfully, because like I said, everything was on fire. Um, you know, all, all of, uh, my bedding, uh, clothes was on fire. The, uh, wood of the furniture and stuff was, just all splintered. Uh, there was glass everywhere, uh, you know, red hot metal uh, from the vehicle, from the, the 155 millimeter uh, HE rounds, uh, the Humvee, uh, you know, pieces, everything just flew in. Um, and, you know, my, my first instinct was, you know, I, I got to get out of here. You know, I, I, I am not going to uh, die in a, in a fiery inferno. Uh, so I, you know, I, I was barefoot. All I had on was a, a pair of Ranger panties, you know, those little silky running shorts, um, made my way over, you know, all the, the splintered wood, um, uh, you know, everything that was burning the, the metal, the glass, uh, I was getting just, you know, jammed in my feet, but, you know, I, I didn't have any, any sensation of pain, anything. It was just, I got to get to the door and I got to get out. Um, I, I, I ripped the handle, uh, out of the door. It was a solid wood door, uh, ripped the handle out and it wouldn't budge. Um, a, uh, a, a buddy of mine, uh, whose room, uh, teammate, uh, whose room was right on the other side of mine. Um, there was a wall that was separating our rooms, but, you know, previous to, you know, the final construction, I guess, of the house, um, there had been a doorway. Well, it had been bricked up and mortised and then, you know, plastered over. So it looked nice. But uh, when the explosion happened, uh, my buddy was in his bed and uh, 
he just remembers opening his eyes and there was literally flames shooting through the wall uh, from my room through all of the, uh, you know, the, the attempts to, you know, close that, that previous opening up. And the first thing that went through his mind was, you know, Ryan's dead. Uh, there's, there's no way anybody could have survived that. And uh, so he and uh, a couple others, uh, you know, they, they made their way to the door uh, to my room. And, uh, you know, at this point, um, you know, everything, the fire was growing, uh, the smoke had already come from the ceiling halfway down, uh, into the room. Um, and, you know, I was starting to choke, uh, and I was really worried about the fire, um, you know, getting more intense because I had a couple of, I, I mean, my, the aid station was in my room and I had some O2 cylinders, some large diesel O2 cylinders in there. So I was really worried about those getting too hot and exploding and, uh, you know, again, taking me out. Uh, thankfully they kicked the door down and, uh, when they saw me, they were like, you know, holy crap, like, you know, are, are you okay? Cause you know, I had a, a huge welt on the side of my head. Um, you know, I, I had, you know, a little bit of blood from the, the shrapnel that was kind of oozing out. Um, and I was barefoot and, you know, behind me, it was just fire. Um, I just remember, you know, kind of shaking my head, uh, you know, shaking the cobwebs out, looking at, at, uh, you know, the two of them. And I, I just said, you know, I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I got to go. It's time to work. And um, so I, I pushed past him and, you know, went, tried to go down the hall. And, uh, you know, they stopped me again. And they were like, hey, bro, like, you know, you're 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 walking in glass. And, um, you know, at that moment, I was like, well, OK, like whatever. Um, that, that, that that'll buff out. Um, and they, they threw me some shower shoes from one of our other teammates rooms. And, you know, I just proceeded to go downstairs, uh, you know, kind of assess the situation, grab my a bag. I had to, uh, treat my, my team sergeant for some facial lacerations, uh, and some other things, uh, treated two of our, uh, interpreters, uh, for some, uh, shrapnel wounds. Uh, and then I assessed two other of my teammates, basically triaged them and, um, went back into the, uh, the, you know, um, the, uh, the team, team room, uh, leadership area where all of our, uh, comm stuff was. Uh, and I, I, I told a couple people, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm grabbing my body armor and I'm going out. And, uh, you know, I, I, I walked out, um, I, I, I had to navigate, you know, past the, uh, the, the blast crater, that was still burning. Uh, our, our ammo supply point was on fire. Uh, you know, we had, uh, you know, all of our rounds were cooking off. Thankfully, none of the AT4s went off. Uh, none of the, the, uh, laws or, or, uh, 40 Mike Mike. Uh, but you know, I, I had to navigate that, uh, around that through concertina through, you know, some other burning vehicles, uh, to get to, uh, where some of the other, um, uh, casualties were, and uh, in the process, um, you know, I I helped to uh, reestablish uh, security, get uh, get some of our, our other Kurdish Peshmeri guards uh, repositioned. Um, my uh, team leader was out in another area, and uh, he was he was doing the same thing. So it um, you know it was it was just you know all about um, putting aside you know what what was going on you know with me and. Uh, you know, just focusing on the bigger picture. I mean, I knew that, you know, I was good. I knew that, 
you know, what I had going on to, to the best that, that I could assess was, um, you know, pretty, pretty superficial in nature. Um, I, I didn't have any, you know, pain, um, that, that I would assess to, you know, hollow organ injuries or anything that like that from the blast overpressure. Uh, so I was like, yeah, I'm good. You know, I, I, I just need to treat who needs to be treated because I was the only 18 Delta only medic on my team. Um, and with a blast that size, I knew that, no, you know, no doubt, you know, people were going to be messed up. Uh, thankfully, you know, it was, uh, you know, the, the nature of injuries were, were pretty, uh, minimal, all things considered. Um, you know, the facial acts, my team sergeant, um, some, um, minor lacerations on a couple others and, um, and then, you know, our interpreters and a couple of our PASH guards. But, uh, you know, the, the uh, QRF response, uh, you know, I, I'd like to say that uh, it went down very, very seamlessly, uh, you know, with, with uh, one of our teammates calling up and uh, essentially giving a, a brevity code for, you know, immediate QRF support. Uh, but, you know, there, there had to be a little back and forth. Uh, nobody really expected that call to actually go out. So, uh, you know, I think it, it struck them, uh, you know, uh, a little out of the blue, um, but uh, you know we we ended up getting some pretty fast response um, from the uh, conventional forces. Like I said, that were over at the birthday palace that we had been working with and everything. Um, conventional forces responded extremely quick. Um, the Iraqi police, Iraqi fire department, uh, and Iraqi national guard at the point was what they were still called. Uh, they all responded. Uh, they, they assisted with, uh, you know, uh, you know, pushing out security a little bit further, uh, the fire department assisted with, uh, you know, putting out the fires, uh, that were still around. My room was still a raging inferno at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it was, it was a, a really shitty situation that, um, could have been made even shittier. But, you know, the collective effort and, uh, you know, switched on uh, awareness of a, a lot of people, uh, you know, outside of the, the immediate situation is really what uh, what, you know, saved the day, I, I believe. Um, if you're ever wondering, and again, I read the notes at the beginning of the episode, 500 gallons of diesel fuel, 20, 155 um, high explosive artillery shells and a quarter metric tons of dynamite. If you're ever wondering what that explosion looks like, well, you know from both ends, the inside and the out, because you have video of this. You have, the, the terrorist made a video of it, and you have it. Yeah, um, I've actually uh, I've got the terrorist video footage, and then I also have uh, an, another uh, another angle from the uh, triple canopy uh, contractors that were over on FOB Danger. So, um, you know, not surprising. Uh, the terrorist video footage was uploaded to the internet. Uh, you know, pretty, pretty quickly after uh, everything happened. And the vantage point that they had was from that cemetery that we had been stating uh, that we were being, you know, surveilled and, and whatnot from. Uh, so, you know, that was, that was frustrating. Uh, but, but yeah, I do have the, the, uh, the video footage. Um, you know, they're, they're probably about uh, 700 meters away, I would say. And uh, you can see the the blast wave as, as after the explosion kicks off. You can see that blast wave coming towards them, and then it just shakes the trees 
and the and the guy filming. Um, it was. The, Do you ever wonder when you watch it how you survived it? Yeah, I mean, I you know, knowing what I do uh, about medicine, you know, the, the training that, that we go through is 18 deltas, understanding blast wave propagation, understanding, uh, you know, um, you know, the, the, uh, you know, hollow organs and, and what blast overpressure can do. Right. I mean, I, I just, I, I have no explanation uh, as to why, you know, my, my lungs were not, you know, one big blood clot. why, you know, my, my stomach didn't explode, why my bladder didn't explode, why my, you know, brain didn't turn to mush. Um, you know, it's, it, it's a miracle. I mean, it, I, I have no other way to explain it. Um, I mean, the explosion was so powerful that it was heard, um, you know, over in, um, uh, uh, where, what's the, the big city to the South, uh, uh, Samara, uh, they, they heard the, the blast all the way down to Samara uh, over on FOB Danger uh, at the you know big division headquarters, uh, which was probably about almost two miles away. It blew out over 50 windows on that on that building. Um, and, you know, I was I, I, I was only about, you know, maybe 14, 15 meters away from ground zero. Uh, you know, my teammates were in the house you know, relatively within same proximity, you know, none of us were, none of us were outside of probably a, a 50 meter radius, 50 to 75 meter radius from ground zero. Wow. That's uh that's unreal. Um, I guess your posture changed after that a little bit, at least on the bright side, it was frustrating that it came from the cemetery, but at least that, you know, that you now had grounds to go get the guys in the cemetery. Yeah, we, well, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't end up going after them, you know, in the uh-huh. cemetery. Uh, we, we, uh, we ended up doing a, um, a, a mission to uh, end up getting the, uh, the younger brother of the guy that we had previously snatched uh, that really accelerated all this. Um, we ended up getting him as well because, uh, you know, he was the one that stepped up for his, his older brother. Uh, when we captured him and uh, pushed this, you know, through to actual execution. So, you know, it was uh, there, it was a little bittersweet. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as changing mindset and, and security posture, you know, 100%. I mean, when, when, when you deploy uh, normally, you know, to uh, an austere location uh, as a, as a SFODA, um, we, we do a, a, a TBA, a threat vulnerability assessment. And, you know, we're, we're trying to understand, um, you know, what we need to do to increase our security posture through, uh, you know, either physical means or, or other means. And, you know, when we had first gotten to crit uh, in November, uh, you know, mid-November of 2004, our, our security assessment for, you know, the house was that, you know, we needed needed some more barriers. We needed some uh, additional, you know, physical, uh, you know, barriers between Highway One and and our team house. We needed to adjust where the entry control point was to the uh, to to our compound. And you know, right or wrong, uh, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know point any fingers. I mean, it's been you know almost 20 years. Um, 
you know, we, we were told, Hey, you know, you, you don't need that. You're not going to get it. Um, you know, it's too much money that those resources need to go elsewhere. Um, and you're right across the street from this giant, you know, base FOB danger. Um, and you know, we, we essentially just accepted that, um, you know, were there some things that maybe we could have done differently? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would say we could, um, but, you know, immediately after, uh, you know, in, an entire special forces operational detachment alpha almost got wiped off the face of the earth, uh, along with all of our Kurdish Peshmerga guards, uh, within, I would say probably, probably 48 hours or so, we, we ended up having those large Hemet's, uh, Hemet semi-trucks, uh, that normally haul the, uh, M1 Abrams. We had, you know, probably, I don't know, 20, 30 of those all lined up on highway one and every single one was loaded up as much as they could carry of those big, you know, uh, Alaska barriers, T walls, uh, you know, they were just coming out of the woodwork, uh, for, to, to bolster the security posture, you know, perimeter of our, our team house finally. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, God's grace, right. Get you all through it. Um, no, no, no reasonable explanation why, um, on the flip side, there's a story somewhere of somebody taking a small piece of shrapnel somewhere and bleeds out and dies. Um, you know, and I don't say that callously, it's just the nature of combat and what happens. It's, it's incredibly difficult to account for. Um, that's your first deployment. You end up going back in 06, 07, 09 to 010 and 11. So you end up going back there four more times after that. Um, I know that's a lot of ground to cover, but I I mean, I, I guess I'll ask the question this way. Um, in those next four deployments, do you feel like you spent more time with direct action, direct action and kicking down doors and finding bad guys, or were you doing more medic stuff than you had thought you wanted to or planned to or whatever? No, it, it greatly accelerated after that with the, uh, you know, kinetic side of things. Um, the, my, my next deployment was, um, to Bakuba. Uh, we were good area town. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Very, very, um, very, very nice garden spot. Uh, you know, a lot of activity there. A uh, couple more IED strikes uh, to our vehicles. Um, you know, a couple of firefights. Um, the the one after that, we started out in Iskandaria, and then uh, we got refocused uh, when the SEALs lost the uh, the emergency response brigade mission in uh, in Baghdad. Uh, so we shifted up there, and then. Operated in in Baghdad, you know, executing uh, high risk warrants, uh, you know, uh, high risk uh, targets, and then the rotation after that, I was there again, uh, and then the subsequent rotation. So, I mean, it was it was very kinetic uh, after that, which you know, I wasn't complaining. It was uh, it was it was busy. It kept your mind off of the time, uh, and you know, it just allowed you to really just you know focus and stay sharp. Did it ever bother you to this point that you got to Pakistan, never touched ground in Afghanistan, and now you've been back and forth to Iraq five different times, and you're going, am I ever going to get to Afghanistan? No, it didn't really bother me. I mean, you know, it was just I, I knew at some point they were they were probably going to, you know, flip things uh, around. Um, and and so, you know, I, I didn't really – 
dwell on it too much. I, I knew at some point the the odds uh, were that I would I would find myself back in Afghanistan. Did uh, uh, Did you end up losing anybody in Iraq? Yeah, um, you know there were there were some guys from uh, from my company from my battalion, um, you know that we lost. I mean, thankfully the um, thankfully the casualties weren't that high. Um, but you know when. I mean, it's all relative, you know, I mean, if you're just simply talking numbers, right, if you're talking a a small organization like Special Forces, if you sustain one or two losses, I mean, you know, relatively, uh, that's, those are heavy losses. Um, You know, I, the the rotation that we started out in Iskandaria, um, that was, that was pretty tough because, uh, you know, Star Major Brad Connor uh, was killed uh, early that deployment. Uh, he was a first group company sergeant major. Um, I had a buddy that was in that company that I'd been in the Q course with. Uh, he he lost his junior, um, you know. But that that conventional unit that that we were you know kind of co located with when when I was in Escandaria, um, you know, in in the first I want to say first half or first quarter of uh, their deployment, they had they had sustained uh, I, I believe it was about sixty casualties. Um, and you know, I, I want to say at least half of those were, uh, were, were fatalities. Um, you know, it was, it's just one of those things, you know, it, 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 it sucks to, to lose any life, um, you know, regardless of whether or not they're in your unit or if, uh, you know, they're one of your brothers and sisters in, in another unit. Uh, but yeah. How did you personally deal with the loss? I mean, does it get you know, your head at all? Does it bother you? Do you just put it aside and process it later? How did you deal with it? Yeah, I mean, I I think in in retrospect, right? I mean, uh, I retired uh, in 2020. Uh, I joined the army in '96, uh, so a lot of my experiences, you know, they're 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 fairly fairly you know far back in the past. Uh, and you know, since being retired for three years, uh, having worked in the, you know, the, the corporate world, uh, in a couple of places, I've realized that, you know, all, my, my manner of coping was pretty much putting everything in, in little containers, little, little glass jars and putting it on the shelf and, um, you know, right, wrong or, or whatever. I think that, you know, it's, a it's, it's a, a coping mechanism that, that you're, you're forced to, uh, when you're in that environment at, at that pace. Um, you, you, you know, trying to unpack that, uh, in the, the four months that you're back home, uh, before you got to, you know, go back over for another deployment. Uh, you know, it, it, in my mind, it, it, you know, I, I viewed it as counterproductive. Uh, I just wanted to, you know, bottle it up and, and focus forward. Um, now on the backside, you know, um, you know, every time that shelf gets bumped a little bit. You know, a couple of those those glass bottles fall and, uh, you know, shit comes out. And, you know, it's 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 one of those things that, you know, you got to you got to deal with. You got to you got to face. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm in that phase now where I that's my next mission, you know, of unpacking all that and, and dealing with it. Uh, do you wish that you had done it sooner? Yeah, I do. I do. I have a lot of regrets. Um, like what? You know, I have regrets of uh, the impacts uh, on my wife and son, 
Um, you know, I have regrets on the impacts with my relationships, uh, you know, with family, other friends, um, you know, it's, but you know, that's, that's in the past, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't do anything about what, what happened. What I can do is just, you know, face it. And, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, my, my son, uh, our son, when, uh, when I, I first showed up to 10th group, uh, he was only about nine months old. Uh, he was born at the tail end of uh, the the Q course, the medic course portion. And uh, so, you know, he, all he knew growing up was, you know, dad's gone, dad's, you know, in war. Um, and, you know, now he's, he'll be 20 uh, in December. And, you know, it's our, our relationship uh, is, is a very rough relationship, uh, you know, in terms of, understanding in terms of you know perspective um and you know it's the same with my wife you know it's 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 you know we've we've got good days we've got bad days um and you know a lot of a lot of the things that you know come up that we've got to deal with are you know resulting from you know roughly you know 20 years of, of being in the GWAT you know 20 years of my career in GWAT you know, focused on nothing but that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the next mission. You know, I, uh, I wonder, um, you know, how many conversations you've had about what you've gone through with your son, um, and with your wife uh, is, I mean, does it, does it, do you talk about it when it comes up or, uh, do you get asked about it a lot? I mean, wh- where, where is that? No, I don't get asked about it. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that couldn't be further from, you know, how it goes down. I, you know, it very much, you know, it kind of, it's viewed as, hey, let's, let's kind of put this chapter, you know, behind us and let's move forward. And, you know, as part of moving forward, you know, moving through all the, all the crap that, you know, built up from that. Um, you know, my son, you know, I, one, one thing that, you know, I, I do, you know, really feel blessed with is, is the, the ability for my wife to, you know, be able to be such a strong parent, um, you know, through all of that with my son, um, you know, be, because, you know, he very much is who he is because of her strength. Um, you know, one might think, oh yeah, but you know, dad was this, you know, badass green beret, super strong, did all this stuff. But, you know, that I I wasn't around. And, and, you know, it was the strength of my wife. It was her tenacity. It was her perseverance, her resilience um, to be able to get through all of that. And I I think in large part, um, you know, my son, uh, you know, adopted a lot of that resiliency, a lot of that, you know, tenacity and perseverance and and ability to deal, you know, emotionally with, with everything that was going on. And, you know, now that, you know, he's a a sophomore in college, he'll be 20 in December, you know, we're, we're starting to have, you know, some deep conversations about things. Um, you know, he, he just came to me, uh, last week or earlier this week. And he, he said that one of his assignments for a psychology class 
is uh, interviewing somebody, uh, you know, with a, a, a very difficult uh, background or, you know, that that's experienced experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, I, it, it kind of hit me when he asked me, he was like, Hey, yeah, you know, I, I want to interview you. Um, and you know, it, uh, it made me feel good, you know, that, you know, at least, at least we're moving in, in a positive direction. Yeah. I mean, listen, that's a, that's a journey. Um, and you know, uh, even my eight-year-old twins sometimes will pose questions about what daddy did in the war. Um, and they're never easy to answer. Um, yeah. You know, my, my, my first thought, you know, uh, when, when they ask that question is always just go to, if you only knew, man, <laughs> you know, but it's just like, uh, you, you sort of are smart enough to hold your tongue and yeah. uh, give them much more, you know, um, plain answer that they can, they can easily understand, you know, um, I think you bring up a good point though, you know, with, with your comment, like if you only knew, you know, um, you know, I, I think about that, you know, quite a bit when, when I am having, you know, those discussions and, you know, whether, whether it's with my wife, my son, or, you know, friends, work colleagues, whatever, um, you know, I, I think there's actually a lot that I'm glad people don't know, oh, no. um, you know, because, you know, I, I mean, just from a personal standpoint, I mean, I know what I saw, I know what I did. Um, I know what I experienced and I know, uh, you know, I, I know what kind of baggage comes with that. And, you know, for, for people to not have to carry that around to not yeah. No, I understand. I want to interject here, though, and, and that because that's part of our problem, right? Like, in general, we take the burden, right? If you only knew, you don't know. Thank God. I'll carry that burden. I'll carry the burden of knowing. You don't have to. And that sort of almost adds on to the self-inflicted wound of this whole thing because, one, we also we, we automatically underestimate, you know, what the other people can handle. That's number one because some people can handle those conversations and can handle those things. Right. Like, I mean, if you had asked me before I got the combat, would I be able to handle it? I probably would have said no after I was able to handle it. I handled it well, well, air quoting, well, yeah. you know, like I, I was able to handle it better than I thought I would, you know, like, and it goes back to the whole thing. And I'm sure you've seen it. You, you maybe even in assessment selection, there are big, strong, tough guys who fold like a lawn chair. And then there are little whippy guys who somehow just keep pushing ahead and getting through. So yeah, I didn't know what I was going to be able to handle what I can't. And so, you know, our mistake is underestimating others. You can't handle what I know. So I will carry that burden for you. And in reality, that's not our job anymore. Right. That's a different conversation here. It's no, I, it, some you, someone should say, tell me the burden. I'll tell you if I can't handle it. Right. Yeah. We just assume they can't. And that's why when you say that, because I think the same way, I feel the same thing. If you're only a kid, you, you, I hope you never know. I, I I didn't even say, and I would say this plainly. I didn't even come close to seeing half the shit you did. I didn't even come close to seeing half the shit a lot of it. I know what I saw and what I did. I hope nobody ever has to do what I did, right? Like plainly. Yeah. And, and that's not a levels thing and who did more and who saw more. That has nothing to do with it. But individually, I wouldn't want anybody else to go through that because I know what it's done to me just the same as you do. However, comma, again, um, it's it's us choosing to bear that burden when we don't have to. Yeah. 
in reality, remember, there are professionals who are trained to be able to handle it, that we actually neglect and ignore, that that is their sole focus in life, is to handle other people's shit. Very well stated, yeah. So, you know, that's the only reason I want to cut you off, and I apologize, but I, I know what you're feeling, right? Like, I understand what you're feeling. I want to do the same for my loved ones, too. I don't want you to have that burden. You don't need another You know this. Why, why, why even worry about it? Well, yeah. But then, then your burden gets heavier. Yeah. And, you know, it, the, the paradoxical nature of it is, is it, it feels, it feels good to be able to talk about it, you know, get it out and, you know, achieve a certain level of understanding uh, with others. Um, But, you know, it's, it's still difficult. Of course. Of course. And it, again, it's, you know, the burden, here's the problem. The burden never gets lighter for us, right? Unless you unload it. Yeah. The weight just stays the same. And in certain cases it gets heavier because other stuff of life now sits on top of that burden. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, where, that's so, so what happens is, is when you try to unload that burden, now you have to go through life to do it. And that's the effect you were talking about on your wife, on your son and everything else. Now I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get through all the stuff on top of me in my life first to get the burden off. Uh, and there's collateral damage there. Um, yeah. or otherwise. it's just the reality of what we live with and what we go through as combat veterans. Yeah. And you know, it kind of like, you know, we, I talked before, you know, I, we, we, we get very comfortable with that chaos and, yes. um, you know, when when we don't have the chaos, we we look for chaos in order to feel comfortable. It's, funny. it's so good. You know, you go through personal things in your life, and I'm not going to turn this into Ryan Neal, therapist here, but I can't tell you how many times the thought creeps in my head. Man, I wish I was just back in combat because combat seems easier some days. Oh, yeah. Like that chaos. And I've said this repeatedly on the show. If all you ask me to do is stay alive in combat, that's like kind of the easiest task there. Although it's as difficult as it is, yeah. and there's a lot of factors that depend on how you stay alive, but it's singular in focus. And it's it's easy to align all your thoughts to there without distraction. Dealing with kids, ex-wife, you know, money, jobs, people, friends, family, everything else, you know, it's like, man, combat was a hell of a lot easier than this. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. I mean, I, 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 I don't know how many times I've said, you know, man, you know, being back in Iraq or Afghanistan would be, you know, so much easier. It'd be, you know, more enjoyable, whatever. Um, and you know, that, that's probably that's probably not a a right. Uh, you no, know, it's not a sane statement at all. No. Um, <laughs> there's there's a lot of therapists out there who hear this conversation. And go look at these two idiots. No, you don't want to be back there. It's yeah. Better. But, but it's, you know, again, you know, I, I think you, you, you hit it on the head is, you know, it's very simplistic. You know, you, you have a mission and, you know, at the base of it, it's uh, you either live or you die. I mean, it's it, that that's really it. Not only that, the path to accomplishment is fairly clear and there are steps laid out. There's no guesswork involved. Trying to figure out what your wife is thinking when she's mad at you involves a lot of guesswork. Involves yeah. a lot of, you know, assuming and hoping I get it right and, and choosing the right words and everything else. That becomes a problem in your brain. 
figuring out how to assault on an objective. Hey, we got steps here. We've done this before. We've practiced this. I know how to start this. I know how to finish. I know how to get out of it. Done. Yeah. There's no thinking involved. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's also, it's also fairly finite, you know, yeah. there, well, you don't really, I mean, yeah, you've got some things that'll, you know, spin off into other things, branches, sequels, but you know, it's, it's fairly finite. Whereas, you know, home, family, you know, relationships, you know, work, every, all of that. I mean, it's, it's very fluid. It, you know, it, it ebbs and flows. Your, your emotions are up and down. There's, there's no, there's no real defined right way. Like you said, there's no defined steps and, you know, there's, there's no manuals, you know, field manuals or other things that you can refer back to for, you know, kind of an algorithmic, uh, you know, response. Um, and you know, that, that, that I think is, is a lot of the challenge as well. Um, you know, is, is reframing from the, that one mindset into a completely different one where, you know, you're, you're not necessarily dealing with common minded people. You're not necessarily dealing with, you know, people that have a, a body of shared experiences and, and whatnot. You're, you're not necessarily dealing with people that, um, are singularly focused on on an objective and you know will do nothing but you know work on achieving that until the end um, but on on the other side of that you know i i don't know if you know the the converse is is, is wrong uh or or bad i mean i i think that um you know everybody looks at things differently and and it has to be appreciated hundred percent. No, hundred percent. Look at it. I think, you know, it's uh, this is definitely a journey. Um, and, and for what it's worth, you know, I've shared this a little bit, you know, I didn't really start mine until 15 years after I had, you know, had most of the stuff happen to me, you know, or, or, or 10 years after my last deployment, you know, you yeah. just, when you talked about those Mason jars, when enough of them get rattled and fall off the shelf, just it's a big old mess sit down there. You know, you got to start cleaning that shit up. Um, and, and you're almost forced to a point of critical mass where you have to make a decision on whether you're going to clean your stuff up or you're just going to let it sit there on the floor and continue to just be messy. Um, so the other thing, the other thing that you have to make a, you know, a, a shift in mindset is, you know, when, when, when everything's, you know, done, you're out of uniform, you retire, you separate, whatever, you know, that, that chapter's over, right? You know, yes, it was a large portion of your life. It shaped you in many ways. Um, but it's not the rest of your life. You are moving on. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I, I think that a lot of people struggle with, well, you know, I, I was, you know, this, this big bag green beret, you know, I was, you know, whatever, you know, I struggle with it at times, you know, thinking back to, you know, some of the, the, the pretty awesome things that I was able to do that I was a, a part of you know, that, that I, I shared with teammates and, and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I mean, those are, those are big things. I mean, and then you, you shift out and you, 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 you have to accept that things are different and you got to find the joy in the new things that you have in your life to replace, you know, those things that are no longer, um, no longer there. Yeah, I mean, I'll let me ask you this. 
what, is there one particular thing that sticks with you more than the other, whether it's an incident or just a, a feeling or whatever it may be? Um, I mean, there's, there's two things they're they're kind of different, but they're, they're the two things that I think about, you know, really a lot was, um, a, um, a, a young kid that, uh, that I worked on, um, who ended up, uh, passing away, uh, once he got to the, uh, the, the OR, um, I, I think about that situation and, and everything, um, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. Um, but then the other thing that I think about a lot is, you know, the, the, the impact of everything, uh, on, on my wife and son and, you know, my relationship, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of, you know, well, you know, maybe if, uh, if I wouldn't have gone SF, um, if I would have just, you know, kind of chosen a path that was real comfortable that, you know, would have, you know, been a desk job, admin, whatever, if I would have gotten out. Um, and, you know, found some regular, you know, civilian job, what would life have been, you know, what would, what would our relationship be? You know, uh, how would, how would my son and I be, um, you know, whatever. But I, I mean, I think about that. And at the same time, I kick my ass for thinking about that because it, it's, it's not going to do any good you know, dwelling on, on those things. I think appreciating, appreciating those is, is definitely necessary, but appreciating it from a standpoint of learning and, and then working to, you know, through the process of moving forward. Yeah. Um, look, you know, it's one piece at a time, one step at a time, one brick at a time, you know, uh, and, and understanding, that you don't have to solve the problem all at once. Um, yeah. And then you can let your guard down. You can, yeah. you know, you can, you, you don't have to have that armor up, you know, that facade of, you know, the big bag, green beret, you know, whatever. I mean, what, whatever you did, I mean, it, it's no longer you except, you know, the, the new persona, you know, open up. Do you ever think about what if that that alive day, that explosion in two thousand five, had had left you physically different than what you were, what your life would be like? Yeah. Um, Does that give you any perspective, or is that just one of those things where, like, hey, I know it would be different? Uh, you know, I I don't. It, it's one of those things that you know I've I've, I've got friends that you know lost limbs um, and, and whatnot, and and considered certain and continued uh, to serve. Um, I would like to think that I, I would I would have had a you know supremely resilient mindset uh, and been able to recover and, and be back at it uh, like some of the you know badasses that I know um, you know I'll plug his name Chris Corbin um, you know phenomenal uh, phenomenal dude uh, he was actually a classmate of mine we started out the 18 Delta course together uh, some things happened and then you know he ended up becoming an 18 Charlie. But, um, you know, he lost both, both of his legs below the knee in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure the timeline was uh, right at about six months uh, post-injury. He was right back at it, you know. Um, and, you know, another buddy of mine, um, he, uh, he lost his, his leg in, in Afghanistan early on. Um, and he ended up, you know, taking command again, uh, even with a prosthetic. 
uh, you know, Chip's a badass. Chip, I, I knew Chip before uh, he went back to SF, before I went into SF. He was the mortar platoon leader of uh, the headquarters, you know, 81 uh, mortars. Uh, when I was a, a scout squad leader in HHC second one or first 187. Um, and, you know, it, uh, I would have liked to think that I had that mindset. I would have hoped, but I, I don't know because it's, it's, it's tough. It is, um, you know, and always looking for perspective, right? Always looking for a way to kind of reframe what we're up against now that, uh, you're sort of out of the, the limelight or, uh, you know, not in the game anymore. Um, you're kind of left to your own devices and your own thoughts, which sometimes can be a very dangerous place to be. Um, yeah. what do you miss most about, you know, the life, the green beret life? I miss the camaraderie. I miss the, you know, the, the shared vision, you know, the, the focus, right. Um, you know, everybody to a T, uh, on the team, uh, you know, in the company, whatever, you know, we were, we were all focused and, and driving towards the same thing. We were supporting each other. Um, and you know, that's, that, that's probably the biggest, you know, the, the excitement, you know, the, the, you know, going out to the ranges, the airborne ops, uh, you know, combat, uh, I mean, yeah, I miss that, but I would say those are the, the primary things that I miss, you know, just that, that family, that close bond that you have where, you know, you know, for a fact that that person to your left and your right, they've got your back no matter what. Yeah. Well, you still have people got your back no matter what. They're just family now, not, not oh, people yeah. wearing a, wearing a uniform, but you know, and again, I, I think that um, there's still that natural learning curve and progression and all that. Uh, so give yourself a little bit of grace with it. Uh, what have you been doing since you've left the military? Uh, well, so as a, a part of the retirement process, uh, linked up with an organization called Hiring Our Heroes. Mm-hmm. And through that, uh, that led to a corporate fellowship uh, as an operations manager at Amazon. Ah. And at the end of it, uh, I was offered a, a, a full-time position as an L6 operations manager. And uh, I did uh, about a, a year, year and a half, if you consider the, uh, the fellowship and all that. Uh, about a year and a half at uh, Thornton, Colorado, the fulfillment center up there, Den 3. Um, and then I knew the fulfillment center down here in Colorado Springs where, you know, I, my, my wife and I and son still live. I knew that was going to be opening up, you know, in, in about a, a year or two when I signed on and I worked to be able to get there. Um, I launched that facility, was there for a year. And um, another opportunity presented itself um, in telecom. And I made the jump um, last August of 2022 over to telecom. And that's where I'm currently at. So, you know, I think, you know, true to form, uh, you know, that I've, I've had, you know, for all my career, uh, you know, I've, I've continually, uh, you know, sought positions uh, that would challenge me, uh, environments to, you know, not become comfortable and, and force new growth and, um, you know, understanding. And, you know, I, I, I feel very fortunate that, you know, I, I have had very good experiences, you know, at Amazon and my current employer and in terms of, you know, providing uh, those growth opportunities and, you know, the ability to grow and nurture, you know, my perspective and understanding. 
Well, look, it's good. I'm glad that you uh, uh, are are settling into civilian life and a career and family and just being regular old Ryan now, uh, which is never. I'm bad. trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. Though. Yeah, there you go. That's there is always that, right? Yeah. Uh, look, you know, I mean, I, it's never an easy transition. It never will be an easy transition. But I will say that there is uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel, and um, you know, remind yourself that much like everything else, you just got to frame this the right way. There, there, there is a mission. There, there is a, a, a goal and an end state for all this. So you just set your path purposefully the same way you would, same way you would for any other, you know, uh, special operations mission. And, and you'll, you'll have similar success. There, there's, there's too many successful people who wore the same hat that you did literally and figuratively um, right. that have figured out a way so you can do it too. Um, and, and I genuinely mean that. And I'm wishing you the best. And, you know, I'm thankful that you shared your story with us, man. It's crazy. Um, I wish we had more time to dive through through the rest of it, but uh, we'd be here for days at this rate. But you know, I always extend, you know, I'll extend the invitation, man. If you ever, you know, need somebody to talk to who knows who knows the path, who knows the rigors, who knows who who also uh, knows what you don't want anybody else to know. Yep. Um, you know, I'm always here. You know, to everybody who comes on this show, it's uh, I've learned a lot from so many guests, and I've learned, you know. Um, you know, better ways to be more effective at helping people and, and, uh, and better ways of listening. And I do love the catharsis of this whole thing, not only for the guests, but for me as well, you know, it makes, it makes it a little bit easier on me. Uh, cause every time somebody comes on, I get a new perspective about what, what people are going through. Right. Uh, and it's just, yeah, yeah absolutely. That shared perspective, collective perspective. hundred percent. So, uh, again, appreciate your time, your honor, your candidacy, love the background, keep rocking it. And, uh, Ryan Neal, thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Appreciate it, Mark. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 